Here is a series of different statements made about Jesus Christ and the Jewish culture and dealing with his death and his arrest. The Jews, true or false, the Jews broke a number of their own rules for how they'd run a trial when they tried Jesus after his arrest. That is true. They broke a lot of them. The Jews needed Pilate's approval to have Jesus killed. That is true. They, could, they lost the ability to execute because of the domination of the Romans. Pilate considered Jesus to be a threat to Rome and guilty of fermenting unrest in the region. That is false. He found him without guilt, without fault, innocent, whatever terms you want to use. It was Roman procedure to wait at least a couple days between sentence of death and the actual execution. Now we know that's true with the Jewish culture. Was it true with the Roman? It was. It was. And so a lot of things happened in the trials of Jesus that were just really, really totally contrary. The Romans used the cross because it brought about death in a speedy fashion. That is false. They used it because it brought about death slow and agonizing. It was a common Roman practice to have prisoners paraded through the streets in a very public fashion when headed for execution. That is true. That is true. I didn't realize it either, but they made it as public as possible. They usually had a messenger going ahead, calling out the crimes, blowing a trumpet, or carrying the sign that they would put at the top of the cross. The reason they made it so public, it's a deterrent to crime. It was a deterrent to crime. It would cause fear in the, into the population. So they used it in a very public fashion to try to keep people uh, under control. Uh, the Bible tells of a woman giving Jesus water as he carried his cross. Is there, have you ever seen pictures of a woman who put the cloth on his face and his image was burned into the cloth? You ever hear about that? Okay. Okay. It didn't happen in the scriptures, but it did in some churches. They teach that. They have a holy day for that. Uh, and they even on, uh, even in this idea that, they, that a woman gave Jesus water, there's stories that abound with it, and that is not true. The Bible doesn't indicate that. Okay, it just says that some people followed him. The only person that's named as coming in contact with Jesus while he's carrying the cross in real personal contact is Simon the Cyrene, who does what? Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, get into a little bit more. Matthew chapter 26, we're continuing. Now we're into that last week of Jesus' life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to veer off for just a couple seconds, okay, here uh, before we get into all of your notes. Thursday going into Friday is where we're at. Thursday evening, what happens is in that, thir- what, what I'm going by our timetable. I'm saying our Thursday evening going into Friday. Thursday evening, uh, they would have the Passover supper. He would have, after the Passover supper, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. There he's arrested. Sometime going into Thursday night, Friday, early morning hours, the trial, the arrest takes place, the prayer time, uh, the prayer time, the arrest, the betrayal, and then he's the trials. So that the trials before the Jews, they are done by dawn. And then they immediately go to Pilate's house. The question that comes up, here is how can we be saying it's Thursday night going into Friday morning, especially when you get into these discussions of what day of the week that he resurrected. We know that he resurrected on the first day of the week. That is very clear. There's no question about that. The question is what day was the crucifixion and the burial that took place? What day did these trials take place? The arrest, the trials, everything seems to go very, very quickly. Did it happen on Friday? The, the problem that we have with it is there's statements in scripture that indicate what he resurrected after the third day. Well, if you take three days and go backwards, then it would have to be what day of the week that he gets put into the tomb if it's after the third day. It would probably be Thursday. Or then, then we have all this reckoning issues of what day it really was. Uh, let me state off the beginning. Whatever day it was really makes no difference as far as the day. The difference is resurrection day. Okay, but for sake of discussion, uh, is it on the third day or after the third day? There are multiple passages of scripture uh, statements. There are four in the New Testament in the Gospels that state he would rise after the third day. There were multiple statements, more, many more, that said he would rise on the third day. Now, which one is it? Is, could there be a contradiction in scripture on this matter? 
Okay, it has to be referring to the same day. How is it possible that it can be referring to the same day? There's an easy conclusion to this, that if we understand that Scripture is not, and by the way, those who question Scripture will say, see, here's another contradiction. The Bible is wrong. The Bible's filled with mistakes. It's a very simple um, conclusion, that after the third day is begun. We say that at times. We talk that way, okay, after the third day. We meant after the third day is in route. That would be the paralleling all these accounts, all these passages without contradiction. But going a little bit further, if he's placed in the tomb, and this we know, he gets placed in the tomb late afternoon before the sun sets on whatever day it is. I, I think it's Friday. He gets into the tomb before the sun goes down. So he's there, he's buried, because it has to be done before the Passover day starts. We know that he rises is very early Sunday morning sometime. Okay, we don't know the exact hour, but the resurrection takes place. The ladies are headed for the tomb right about that dawn time, but he's already resurrected. We also know this, that if we take the literal 72 hours, three days, we take that concept, none of the times work together. They just don't on a 72-hour basis if you're going to be that literal because if he goes in Friday around, let's pick a time. Let's say he's buried around 6 o'clock in the evening. Well, he resurrects early Sunday morning sometime, and so so there's no consistent 72-hour period that it has to, that that fits all those times because it's different times of the daily clock. And so when we're talking three days, we're not talking literally 72 hours. We're talking different concept. We know Jewish reckoning of the days back then was different than how we reckon when days start now. In Jewish culture, in Bible culture, when did when did Friday begin? In our, taking our clock, what would be in Jewish reckoning? what would be the beginning of Friday? Okay? Not, not, in, not back then. Okay, that's t- today. Back then, it would be, okay, roughly our Thursday evening, right about this time of the year, 9 p.m. Okay? Based on what? When the sun goes down, that's the beginning of the new day. So by our Thursday evening, and then, by the way, when we're in winter months, what, day, what time does Friday start? Okay, it's going to be, you know, that five-ish o'clock. And so you have that whole concept that it's sundown, so the the Friday begins with sundown, and it ends when the sun goes down the next day. Okay, then that's Sabbath day. So Jesus getting in the tomb before Sabbath time, so if he gets in at Friday 6 p.m., that is still Friday. Sabbath doesn't start until around 9 p.m., Okay, when the sun goes down. And so there's a big difference here uh, how the Jews reckon timing. Also in the Jewish reckoning of the day, we have a little bit different timing. In the, in the New Testament, extra biblical writings, when it states this statement, sometimes it did, sometimes it doesn't. A day and a night doesn't literally mean a 24-hour period in every occasion. It just refers to that day, Friday. Day and a night would be an idiom that they would use. Again, that's not always, but that is that for... Uh, shows up at times, and they would use that phrase to say a day and a night being part of that time period. And it meant some parts of that one day. In the Jewish reckoning, a part of a day was considered counting that as a day. If he only went into the tomb Friday afternoon around 6 p.m., even though he was in only for three hours on Friday, in Jewish reckoning at this time, that meant that was the first day. The second day would start when the sun went down. So a part of the day was equal to the whole in their reckoning. That's not the way we work, but that's the way they worked. So if he was in the tomb Friday at 6 p.m. for only three hours on Friday, that is still his first day in the tomb. Come 9 p.m., we get into Saturday, that's his second day in the tomb. And if he resurrected sometime during the early, early morning hours of Sunday, that would be the third day in the tomb. That's Jewish reckoning, not American reckoning, but that fits that, old ta- that concept of that time. So only a couple hours on Friday made the first day. Saturday would be the second day. Sunday would be the third day. And sometime during that third day, he would resurrect. That would fit the way that they did their reckoning. And in that era, that was different. Besides, the Gospels make this comment that he was put in the tomb on the evening of the day of preparation. The day of preparation for the Passover. There are multiple phrases that talk 
about that. They even talk about the day before the Passover was the day that he was put in the tomb. That has to be what day of the week? It has to be Friday. In fact, the term that is used for preparation, and we're even told it's around the sixth hour or 3 p.m. that, that uh, he is taken down from the cross. The term or the word in the Greek is the word for Friday that is still used even today. Okay, so the idea of this, you know, let's, let's get all bent out of shape of which day it is. One, I don't think we should. Two, indication and understanding the culture of that time really lends to the Friday uh, crucifixion and burial being there Friday, Saturday, and then resurrecting sometime on Sunday morning. So what happens that, that evening is uh, before this all takes place, that Thursday going into Friday, you have the Last Supper. Um, that's, the, as we already mentioned, going into what we would call Thursday evening. And then there's the high priestly prayer. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane, pray for several hours. Uh, early, early Friday, that uh, by our clock, early Friday morning, he's arrested. The trials begin. The trial started off, we mentioned this last time, in, and we're not in John, but let me just rehearse before we get into Matthew, that the first place he goes right away from the garden is to Annas's house. Annas was the former high priest, but he's basically high priest emeritus. They hold this mock trial. There's hardly anybody else there. They have a guilty verdict in mind. They're just trying to prove them uh, what's wrong and then before they do the official trials but it is the first of the trials that are totally illegal he asks him questions you're never supposed to have the defendant uh, testify against himself you're not supposed to have trials at night but uh, it's so illegal and Jesus doesn't answer because everything is illegal his only response is basically I've spoken in public you know um, and so you've got all the data just get the people who are who are who have been witnesses and he gets rebuked. How could you speak to the high priest this way? He gets struck. That's illegal by Jewish law as well. Annas then sends him to his son-in-law Caiaphas who is the high priest and he goes to Caiaphas's house for further examination. This takes place um, a couple hours later and so they're meeting at his palace. There are more people there. Again, they try to get Jesus to testify against himself. Jesus basically is saying, okay, it's not true. They ask him this. It doesn't say anything, but then they ask him, are you the Messiah? And he responds by the Gospels. One says, as you say, which is a euphemism for, you know, what you're saying is correct. And elsewhere, it's very clear, he says, I am. And so the, con- the conversation goes on. They've condemned him. They start mocking him. And the servants start beating him. There, nothing happens for a little bit. Because they have to have a legal trial that is legitimate. And it can't take place until dawn. So they have this period of time that they're abusing Jesus. And they're just waiting waiting out until dawn when they can do the stamp of approval of what's already been decided, execution. This is when Peter has his denial. During this time then, they meet early. Now it says that they have the entire elders and the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin is gathered. They're still doing it very early in the morning before everybody wakes up. They ask him about if he's the Christ. He confirms it uh, by saying, if I tell you anything further, are you going to believe what I'm saying anyway? And you're going to see the Son of God coming. And so... They, they say we're going to crucify him and he's guilty of blasphemy. Now they pass the, the stamp of approval. We've condemned him. We're going to take him to Pilate. This is when we read about Judas. Judas, according to Matthew 27, he is, has second thoughts. He shows up around this time and he's saying that he's repented of it. He realizes Jesus is innocent. His, the word repent isn't the same normally as repent in the scriptures. But he is saying, I betrayed innocent blood. He wants to give the money back. They can't take the money because the money is blood money. You can't. It's illegal, they say, that we would take the money back. But they gave it. I mean, talk about hypocritical. And so they, uh, they take the money, and what they do after this setting is they, they say, um, we're going to take the money, we're going to buy a new field that's going to be used for burying foreigners, uh, the, those who nobody claims. And so they buy the, buy the uh, field, and they use that. Judas goes out hangs himself and according to the book of Acts the rope breaks and he smashes to the ground and he dies a horrible, horrible, horrible death. 
And even after he's dead, there's a horrible setting to it. And so his story is, is um, well told, well documented. We know all about what happens here with Judas and how you know, people don't even want to name their kid Judas for centuries on end. So we have the conclusions where we end up last week. The lie of Satan, it ends in emptiness. Those who say, I'll follow and it'll be rewarding. And No, no, that's an empty lifestyle. The world promises much, but it, in turn, it'll turn on us when all of a sudden we want to do what's right. There are times when we cannot turn back and undo when we made decisions. There is a, there is a place of no going back. Proverbs chapter 1, where God says, I will laugh at their calamity. There's a point of no return. We, we have no guarantee that repentance and forgiveness is always an option. It may run out sometime. God alone knows when that time runs, runs out. You and I, we want to encourage repentance. So we need to examine whether in the faith, being in close company with people doesn't make us a believer. Being knowledgeable of Christian ministry doesn't mean that we're saved. Even casting out demons and doing miracle works. Well, that's Matthew chapter 7. Have not we done all these wonderful things, cast out demons, done wonderful works, and he will say unto us, depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never, yeah, and so we have those comments, and so our whole point is examine our lives, be careful that we're not playing a role, making sure we're in the faith. The trials begin. Let's pick up here, okay, in Matthew chapter 27, in the new material that we want to get into, this is really interesting of what happens in this whole series. Now, these are the legal, the civil trials. This is where he appears before Pilate, and also, who's the other Roman leader that he appears before? Herod, okay? And so they get involved. And so Jesus is brought. Early dawn is taking place. The Jews show up. They're at Pilate's place. I guess we have to start in, in John 18, according to my notes up here, is where the first conversation starts in John 18. I'm going to put a lot of it on the wall. You can read through and follow along as you go through. And so we're blending some of the passages because John 18 gives the first phase, and then we get Matthew 27 gives the second phase of some of this discussion with Pilate. So they want to get Jesus done and condemned quickly. Okay, Jewish law, you can't condemn the same, you can't execute the same day, but they're going to do it. Okay, and um, they're going to get Pilate to do the same thing. And so they want to hurry up. They come, they want to get Pilate to pass, pass sentence, get it done before the, the city wakes up. Because remember, just a week before, the city was crying, Hosanna, king of the, son of David and king of the Jews. They want him crucified this day. Okay, before Passover. So they're going to really try to push their hand. They come and they do not enter Pilate's house. This is one of those comments that, that you look at and go, you got to be kidding. They will not come into Pilate's house because it's the Passover Eve. If they walk into his porch, they have defiled themselves by entering into a Gentile's home and they won't be able to celebrate Passover. The irony is what they're doing is so illegal against their law, but they're trying to be very careful about the minutia, but they're violating the whole spirit of, their, of the entire Jewish system. And so they, uh, they want to follow some details, but they want to kill a man. It's all about killing a man who's innocent, but that's okay as long as we don't enter into the Gentiles' home. And so this whole fiasco starts taking place. Pilate um, is, hears that they want him to pass a death sentence. And we know in John chapter 18 that the Jews cannot, can, cannot pass death sentences anymore. They used to, and their form of death sentences was stoning, number one. They could also behead, and they also strangled. Those were their typical capital punishments at that time. But they were, uh, they were not allowed anymore to be able to do that. In fact, they aren't allowed to keep their own high priest. They have to get approval from the Romans. So Though they have a little bit of independence, a lot of their system is under Roman rule. The high priest can't keep his high priestly robes in his possession. The Romans have to keep them. So they, they, um, they are under this domination, and so they've lost some of their abilities to raise taxes without approval, to take care of their own, uh, their own th- uh, uh, capital punishment or things of that sort. And so when they arrive, they say to Pilate these comments, and we read about them in John chapter 18, jumping down in verse 29, he, they, he asked them, what accusation do you bring? They answered, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto you. And so they're, at, they're, they're responding in a very vague way. We wouldn't have waken you up early in the morning if it wasn't something serious. Trust us, is what they're saying. Does Pilate trust the Jews? Not any further than he can throw them. 
Okay, we'll see in a minute how bad this has gotten. And so uh, in Luke 23, we read that they added these statements. He's perverting the nation. He's forbidding to pay tribute to Caesar. Is that what Jesus said? No. In fact, what did he say? Render unto... Yeah, he did not do that. They're lying. They're lying. And he's claiming to be a king. And so if you were the Roman procurator, if you're the Roman governor, do those statements demand you do an investigation? You have to. You have to. By law, you, this, what, what those accusations are is this man is, is, is uh, fomenting rebellion. Okay, can we close that door? Somebody close that and stop this draft in here. Okay, and see if that makes a difference. Um, thank you. And so um, what, what they're doing here is they're, they're making up lies, which, by the way, is no surprise. In their own trials that they've held already this evening, did they hire false witnesses? Yes. Okay, and so it's been going on. The accusations demand that he checks it out. He ha- has a private interview with Jesus. And based on the words, we, we'll jump to the end. I'll give you the private interview in a second. But based on the conclusion, he's going to come out and say, I find nothing deserving of death. So the conversation basically goes this way. He asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus basically says, who is asking this? Here's the sense of it. Are you asking me this as the Roman governor who feels threatened, or are you asking this because that's what other people have told you to say? And so the response is, they, you know, Jesus and Pilate have this discussion, and Jesus goes on and says, if I were really a king threatening Rome, if I were a king, and, and I'm adding the threatening to Rome, my servants would fight. Okay, it's obvious they aren't fighting. I don't have a kingdom like you think or a kingdom you fear. That's the gist of the conversation. What you're concerned about, there is no reality here. That there is nothing like this. And so he asks again, are you a king? And he says, to this end I was born to bring the truth. This is when Pilate makes that famous statement that he says, what is truth? Okay, now understand where Pilate's coming from. Is Pilate saying, tell me the truth? I don't think so. Pilate is not a philosopher. Pilate is a what by trade? He's a soldier politician. Does he really care about truth? Okay, let me rephrase that. Do politicians really care about truth? (laughs) Typically, the answer is no. What do they care about? Typically. Power. Yeah, yeah, staying in power, you know, and, and, you know, they're not concerned about the truth the way you and I are concerned about the truth. They're concerned about just, okay, and so I think this is more of a cynical comment to what is truth, and he is not seeking and saying, tell me the truth, you know, what must I do to be saved? That is not where Pilate is, if you understand his mindset at this point. He is basically saying, okay, you know, who has the truth? He has heard this before. He has heard Roman philosophers, he has heard Jewish religionists, he has heard all these things, and as a soldier, and as a Roman, it doesn't make any difference what principles, the old adage in the Roman government was, might makes Right. Okay. And so it's just a matter of power. And so in this conversation, Pilate comes back and he says, I don't find anything. This guy is not guilty of anything. Okay. He's not guilty of to be executed. And this isn't the only time he says it. In fact, do you know how many times Pilate says that to the Jews? Five times. Five times he says, I find no fault in this guy. And he declares he's innocent. The Jews become, and according to Luke 23, they become more fierce and they stir up the people. You know, they're saying that Jesus stirs up the people, implying he's a revolutionary. And so Pilate doesn't respond. Now here's, the, the conversation goes a little bit now into a conflict. And that, that Pilate is, Pilate, here, here's where it's going to end up. Pilate is going to say, I find no fault, I find no fault, until he comes to a point where it says he seeks to do something with Jesus. Do you remember what it is? He seeks to release Jesus. And that gets to that point where he is determined to release Jesus. And by the way, on the flip side, in the background, is Pilate getting other information about Jesus? Is he getting personal private information from somebody personally? Who? His wife says, wait a minute, don't touch this guy. And so he's got his wife warning him, 
And by the way, there's going to come in this conversation, there's going to come a point where he fears. It says, Pilate feared greatly. It comes right after the comment that's made about Jesus claiming he is a God. Why would a Roman fear the idea of Jesus claiming to be God? What's that? Okay. He could be fearing the people, okay, which is going to be a part of this. Could he be a little bit superstitious about offending a deity? Okay, and so you, you've got all this, you know, here's the big question. If you, know, if you and I, it's easy to say Pilate should have released Jesus because we're standing on the outside. Let's put ourselves in Pilate's sandals, okay, and let's figure this out. Why is Pilate going to state five times he's, guilt, he's innocent? His wife is saying, don't touch him. He's seeking to release Jesus, but he gives in. Why? He has the authority to release Jesus. In fact, he even has Jesus beaten so that the Jews would say he's had enough. He even tries to seek to release Jesus by hauling up another prisoner by the name of Barabbas and say, take your pick. Okay, here's a murderer, here's Jesus. He's trying all the stuff. Why doesn't he just say, he's released, be quiet, sit down? Yeah, why? Okay. okay, let's, again, we've shared this with you at one time before. Let's do this. Let's go back to this 28 AD. Okay, let's find out what's going on in Pilate's head. Let's figure out what he's been doing. He is in trouble with the emperor, okay? This is not his home territory. He comes from a, uh, a region that is a much nicer region in the Roman Empire uh, that he served in, and he's from central Italy, which is a lot more beautiful and and better weather than Judea. He's been there for a period of time now, a couple years, and he's going to serve a total of 10 years. That's amazing because of what data we've given you here. They usually didn't last that long. And so he got assigned to come to this region, and he's the procurator, the governor, terms you may want to use. When he came to this region, he came in like a tornado. Well, he, he approached this in 26 AD in knowing that this region of Judea is, has a reputation in the Roman Empire and in Rome itself that these people are really hard to keep calm. These people are all over the place. They're weird because, one, they believe in only one God. That makes them really weird. And then they're very radical about foods. They, they won't eat certain foods. They would rather die than eat pork. Okay, these people are really, really weird. They would even, they would even, uh, you know, harm private body parts. Now, from a Roman perspective, the Jews are really strange people. Okay, because they're really eccentric because of their eating habits, their circumcision habits, all those things. And so he comes in when he he's, he we we even have a footnote in records that he says he calls them the horde of the circumcised. Okay, and so he doesn't really like the Jews, but this is his assignment. His normal residency when he comes for any Roman governor is Caesarea, which is north of Jerusalem. And so he would come down to Jerusalem only when there's a major uh, feast days because he's want to be there to keep the peace and to, to do the politically right thing. He would show up. And so he first shows up in 26 AD. Now this is about two years before the trials take place of Jesus. He shows up and what he does is he marches in to show his power, to show Roman power. There's an exchange of him and the other governor. When he comes in, he is upset that he knows that the previous uh, Roman governors, they have deferred to the Jews. The Jews don't like any icons on anything. They don't want pictures of the people, especially Caesar's picture, because everybody considers Caesar to be a god. So if they march in with these, with these pennants that have Caesar's face on them, these, that's, a, that's an image. And to the Jews, that's wrong. Well, Pilate thinks that all the previous governors who, who uh, did not come into the city of Jerusalem with those penance, with those images, so that as not to offend the Jews, he thought they were weak-kneed individuals. He thought that they were deferring to the Jews and they shouldn't have. They should have shown might and power and who cares about your silly traditions were Rome. And so when he comes walking in, marching in, he has them carry those placards in 
And remember, there's the Jewish temple. Right above it is Antonio's fortress, which the walls look down towards the temple area. And he had his troops, his personal escort, put their pennants right here on the top of the pillar, on the top of the the uh, walkway, so that when the Jews went to worship, they would look up and they would see icons. They would see what they would call idols. And they were so upset about it. The Jews were mad. He was like, I don't care what you think. I'm Rome and I'm going to fly these ramparts. The Jews were so mad. Folk, you got to be really mad. That they marched out in protest to Caesarea. It's 105 miles of a march. They got to his, his spot and where he was now back again at his uh, Caesarean palace. And they come and they sit there for several days. They just do a sit-in around his palace. And uh, they're, in t- they're intense. They want these, these images taken down from Antonius Fortress. On day number six, he gathers them together and says, let's go to the sports arena there and where we can all talk. And he, appro- he talks to the c- crowd. He has set his soldiers already in the arena so that as he gives the speech, what happens is the Jews don't respond, so he gives the idea that his soldiers should come out of hiding and threaten to kill the Jews if they just don't shut up and go home. The Jews fall on their knees and they go ahead, cut off my head. He is totally unprepared for this. He didn't expect anybody to die over a pennant, over something like that. And they are so enraged and so he then capitulates to the Jews. Rather than kill them off in his sports arena, which by the way, if he kills the Jewish leaders off in the sports arena, who else is going to get killed? He is. Okay, he hasn't been there but a couple months and he's got a revolt going. So he capitulates. Now, if you thought these people were absolutely the low life and that they got away with too much and they were spoiled, how would you feel after you gave in to them? Okay, now you're really angry toward these people. Now you're thinking that these people, they are not going to get away with the next thing. Any opportunity I get, I'm going to show power. I'm going to get my way over them. So what happens is within a period of time, the city of Jerusalem is, has a water issue. Pilots, you know, has his engineers come up with a solution. Let's build a Roman aqueduct. And that aqueduct can provide water, which they did in many major cities. And so in Pilate's mind, who should pay for the aqueduct? The Jews, they're going to benefit from it. Oh, by the way, the Jews have a collection plate in the city of Jerusalem. It's in the temple. And all the Jews give to this, so they've got money. And so what he does is he has the aqueduct system put in place, and he confiscates some of the temple treasury to pay for it. And so then when he comes back his next visit, oh man, they are upset again. That he has used God's funds to provide the water duct that he took from them. You know that idea of taxation without representation. Okay, they're, they're under this mindset. What he did is he was marching in. This time he was more subtle. He had some of his soldiers dress up like the citizens so that when he was praying through the streets and they're booing him and hissing him, the soldiers were there. And when he gave his speech to placate the people and to calm them down about the treasury issue, he uh, gave the, the point where the people weren't coming. He gave the signal. His soldiers mingling with the crowd all of a sudden took out their batons and they started whacking people. But some of the soldiers got carried away way. They whacked a little bit too hard. There was a lot of people injured. Many were killed. And now you have even more of this, uh, this problems. Now when it happens sometime in here, according to Luke 13, he had some of the Galileans killed when they were at the temple. And so whatever their revolt was, whatever it was, he has brought, he has drawn blood. He has done his own Boston Massacre. And he's got the people really fomenting. They are ready to do revolt against him. And so they're outraged. He's mad at them. They're mad at him. It's not a real good situation. The region's filled with unrest. And so what he does, and it's totally not even in the Jewish property, in King Herod's fortress. Herod's fortress, which is a Roman, supposedly, a Roman-owned property, he has hung shields once again, showing the emperor's face. 
And he had taken them down before, but now he hangs them in Herod's court place, which is in that region. The Jews are upset again that he's hanging icons in the city of Jerusalem. So they send a group of people to him saying, please take the shields down. Notice who they include. Jewish nobles and Herod's four sons. Even Herod's family realizes this is not wise. Let's get these things down. Pilate, if you don't take them down, we're going to have revolution. It's not wise. Let's get them down. Pilate absolutely refuses. This isn't Jewish temple. This is Roman property that is under Roman control. Herod works for, uh, for Rome. And so there's no way you're telling us what can go in our courthouse. Okay, and they're going to revolt to the point that what they do is the Jews send a group of, of emissaries all the way to Rome to make all these accusations against Pilate. And so they get him called on the carpet. Emperor Tiberius, he gets mad because he only cares about two things. There's only two things he cares about in any region. Money, taxation, not being stopped, and peace. Everybody's quiet because if there's no peace, what does Tiberius have to do? Send troops and it comes out of Roman, uh, Roman pocketbook. So let's collect our taxes and let's keep the peace. That's your job. That's all you have to do. Keep the peace, collect the taxes, and what has Pilate done? He has created a hornet's nest. And so Emperor Tiberius sends a message back and orders him to take the shields down. And so in his stubbornness, he puts himself in trouble with Emperor Tiberius. And he's basically told, from what we understand historically, that if you screw up one more time, you're being shipped to Siberia. Okay? And you're done. And so if you were Pilate and they've gone over your head, how would you feel about the people? Would you hate them? Politically? Yep, they would be your enemies. Would you try to work with them and understand them? Okay, then why didn't he say, Jesus goes free? Just to you know, snub my nose at you, Jesus goes free. Because they make a statement to him that makes him buckle. If you free him, you are no friend of Caesar's. Which means they're going to do what? We're going to go back and we're going to say, Tiberius, Tiberius, Pilate, didn't free, Pilate freed Jesus. They're going to tattletale on him and what's going to happen to Pilate? Siberia, the Roman Siberia. This is, this is by, by the way, are politicians good at self-preservation? Okay, this is self-preservation. Even though ethically he knows he's free, he tries to placate the crowd He's not saying he's free. He tries to placate. Do you, do you remember the passage? He seeks to see Jesus released. Well, he can do it. No, he's seeking what? Approval and everybody to go along with this so as not to get himself in trouble. And so he's trying to placate, come up with some solution through these trials so that he can get Jesus released but also calm down the Jews. And he's learned enough that says, I've got to keep the peace even over these rascally Jews that I don't like, but, I, but I've got to deal with them. And so a lot of this history plays into a lot of what happens with Jesus. Why did this happen two years? All of that happened within two years before Jesus comes on trial. Why is that? Why is that? They, and by the way, it had, to be, it had to be crucifixion that he died by. How do, why is that? prophesying. He had to die. And the Jews didn't do crucifixion because they said cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. So it had to be a Roman execution, a Roman approved execution. So how does all of this get coordinated at that right time in history that Jesus comes to trial and it's right at the moment where Pilate is walking on eggshells with these people that he hates and he's not willing to just exercise his authority like he normally would have done, but now he's come to a point where he's very, very, very apprehensive. God's timing is amazing historically how God brought all of this into play at this moment in this history is absolutely amazing how God providentially works in major events as well as minor events, making the moment to fulfill what he wants. Truly our God is a sovereign God. That he can control nations, he can control politics, he can control uh, the attitudes and orchestrating events. You know what's amazing? 
We're looking at the life of Christ and how it's so orchestrated by God working behind the scenes. Does God do that in your life as well? He does. He orchestrates events. And our God is absolutely amazing that he is in the big history and the small history. And most of all that he's in our history. Involved in orchestrating events. And you know what amazes me? Is he does it for every single one of us. And it's all orchestrating together. And not only for every single one of us, but everyone who's one of his children, everyone worldwide that he can orchestrate all those things. I can't keep my own schedule straight. And he's able to keep everything straight. I can't remember, you know, some of you ladies, you can't remember what's in the cupboard when you go shopping. Well, do we really have that back home? God knows all those details. What an amazing sovereign that we worship this morning. Absolutely amazing. So, Pilate figured out, now this is the very beginning of the trials. He thinks Jesus is innocent, and we come back into this passage. The only one who records this is Luke. In Luke 23, he records the conversation that Jesus has with Herod. What happens at this point is the Jews are making comments, and they say that Jesus is, you know, Pilate is saying, I find him innocent. They say, yeah, but he's fomenting insurrection. He he has stirred up the Galileans. Soon as Pilate heard Galileans, it's like, oh, oh, ding, 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 ding. Not my baby. There is a, there is a Roman slash Jewish leader who's in charge of Galilee. This is called passing, passing the buck. Okay, and so what he's going to do is he sends Jesus to, Pi, to Herod, who is... Uh, but this is the Herod of Matthew 2. This is his son. Um, this isn't him. So he sends him to Herod who rules over Galilee at this time. And uh, this isn't unusual. Roman leaders could, could do this. In fact, in the book of Acts, you read about it again, that they work together and they're saying, what do you think? You try the case with me for me. Let's see, you know, Felix Festus, let's hear what your opinion is of this to hear the other dignitaries. And what's interesting at this time is Pilate and Herod were not getting along. Part of that is because Pilate thought all the Jews were absolutely dregs. That they were, they were subclass people. Herod's called the king of the Jews. Herod claims to have Jewish, even though he doesn't, he claims to have Jewish blood. So he's part of that culture, part of that, uh, that area, even though he's more Edomian than Jewish. And so Herod doesn't think much of them. They have, from what we understand historically, they had very, very little contact prior to this point. Because Pilate wanted nothing to do with Herod. They just kind of tolerated each other. And Pilate even told Herod what he was putting hanging in his palace. And and so now they become bestest of friends after this. Okay, they, now they become BFF because Pilate has shown to Herod some form of respect and, you know, I'm going to bow to your decision, Herod. You decide this. Well, Pilate's passing the buck, but Herod's taking this as something good. And by the way, Pilate's looking and saying, Herod can get me off the hook. And so they become friends with this. Herod takes the case and uh, he has Jesus in front of him. He has heard about Jesus. He knows of the miracles. In fact, what what does Scripture say Herod wants Jesus to do? He wants him to do a miracle. He wants him to perform something. He asks questions, but Jesus is silent this whole time. This is one of those moments where they are making accusations, the Jews before Herod, and Jesus says nothing. This is so illegal. This is so wrong. And so unable or uh, um, unwilling to defend himself, the Jews, Herod, Herod's group, they just look and say, this guy's an idiot. This guy is powerless. This guy is not what we've heard. And so they mock him. They criticize him. They, they, uh, you know, they joke about Jesus and they scoff at him because you know, Jesus is showing he's powerless. And so there's no threat. And so they send him back to uh, Pilate. And uh, by sending him back and making no decision, we read later on that when Pilate says, I find no fault in him and neither does Herod. Herod sending him back is basically saying he's innocent. I don't see anything here. And so the message that goes back to Pilate is Herod finds nothing worthy of death. And so this is the second time that a Roman official will say he's not worthy of death. Okay? And so Pilate quotes this later on that Herod didn't find anything wrong with him. Uh, so Jesus comes back. Here he is back in Matthew 27 now. This is his second appearance before, before, Herod, uh, before Pilate. Excuse me. He comes back. And this time, Pilate says, okay, I want to talk to the chief priest 
and I want the rulers. You guys, this is going to be our private conversation. You tell me what's going on here. And he tells them, I find no fault in him. So this is again when he makes it. And then this is the moment in Matthew 27, he seeks to get Jesus released. Um, so Jesus at this point is going to remain silent. Jesus there is accused of, of lots of things. But it says in Matthew 27, Pilate knows the Jews are doing this out of envy. He understands the setting. He understands that they are doing this. His wife comes at this point and warns him, but he is apprehensive of the Jewish crowd. We understand why, because of what we've given you historically. So he seeks to placate the crowd. This is when he offers to set a prisoner free. I do this every Passover, Roman custom. Let's, let me get somebody free. They bring up Barabbas, and he comes, and they're both, they're both accused of rebellion, but Barabbas is also a murderer, and they choose Barabbas. Pilate's response is, I don't get, the, these people are crazy. I don't understand what they're doing. So Pilate then punishes Jesus. We read about this. This this is what he's thinking, that he's going to have him beaten, and when people see him so emaciated, they will have pity and they'll say, he suffered enough. That's what Pilate is thinking. Because normally wouldn't people respond this way? Okay, and so what he does is he has Jesus flogged with the 40 stripes. Now the 40 stripes goes this way, just to give you a historical data. This isn't something that is just, you know, uh, a strong spanking. This is really, really, really a horrible thing. The whipping is done very public. The person is tied to a stone or, um, or to a, pedal, uh, a pillar of some sort. Uh, their hands are tied. They're usually stripped bare and uh, they're tied over this low post. And what happens is they use a cat of nine tails. That cat of nine tails is nine different strands, leather strands or cords. At the end of them, the Romans put pieces of glass or sharp metal or sharp wood that they would just have real sharp edges to them so that when all of a sudden, Jim, I'm going to use you for a second, when they would whip, the nine tails would come across and they would dig into the flesh. And then they would pull it back. The idea was basically we're going to flay the person alive. And so there's 39 stripes. Most prisoners would die under this. And historically, this was enough to kill people. And um, so it was, a, it was a very brutal, cruel type of treatment. And it often did result in death. The, uh, I'm sorry, uh, go back here. Uh, Pilate then brings this Jesus who is so beaten and parades him before the crowd. And uh, he's assuming the crowd is going to say, okay, that's it. We've, you know, enough. And he presents him, and this is when he makes the comment, behold the man. They call out, instigated by the chief priests, they call out, crucify him, crucify him. And he makes this statement. He says, you can crucify him. It's almost, go ahead, crucify him. I find no fault. It still isn't his final approval. But he basically, he says that. This is the fifth time that he has made these declarations. All through scriptures, if you mark it down, this is what he has said. I find no fault. Having examined him, I find him not guilty. I find no guilt in him. I'm bringing him out. I find no guilt in him. We read, take him yourselves, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate is convinced Jesus is innocent of capital punishment. But what he says to them, he says, you can take him. And they say, no, no, our laws demand that he dies because he claims to be God. So they didn't understand this as being approval. They understood Pilate just being frustrated. And uh, G, this is when Pilate says, or the scripture says Pilate is even more afraid. I think it has to do with accusations for the crowds, censure by Rome, or he's thinking, this guy's a god? If this is a deity, I've already beaten him. He could come and haunt me. He could come and get even with me. And so he takes Jesus back in and they do a private one-on-one interrogation. And he asks the question, are you a God? Okay, and so Pilate now has caught that, that flavor. And Pilate's, a G, Pilate's concerned now. And Jesus basically remains silent. And Pilate says, you better answer me. Don't you know I have power over you? This is when Jesus makes the statement, my life is not in your hands. You have no power but that which is given above. And besides, those who accuse me will be held of greater crime than you. Who, uh, who gives a sentence. And so Pilate, again, is determined to get Jesus released, it says. And then he goes back out. And the Jewish people respond. They say, if you release him, you are no friend of Caesar's. Whoa, 
This is where they've got him by the nose, okay? And they're saying to him, we can accuse you of what you've done before, and if you get removed from office, by the way, understand, Roman governors who are, who are not fulfilling their duty don't just get fired. They can get removed from office, all their properties confiscated, they themselves can suffer torture. So this isn't just an idea, a matter of keeping my office. This is keeping my life and my children's life, and my wife's life. And so he's caught in between the proverbial rock and hard place. He brings Jesus out. He sits on his judgment seat. He makes the comment, here is your king. They call out even more, crucify, crucify him. And um, he responds, should I crucify your king? This is when they make that most tragic statement. We have no king but Caesar. Are you kidding me? They've been having revolts and rebellions for the last several decades because they don't want to be under Jewish uh, Roman rule. Now they just totally abdicate and say, we want to be under Roman rule. And so they've rejected all hopes, all help from a Messiah. This is their big statement of condemnation. Pilate then, to be free of guilt, and this is not unusual, this was done many times in public and in private settings. Even in revenge murders, people would wash their hands to indicate they are, they are innocent, that this is something they had to do. And so he washes his hands as was customary and the crowd say, don't worry about it, let his blood be upon our heads. Woo! Two statements here. Just amazing. We have no king but Caesar, okay, and let his blood be upon our heads. And so they willingly accept all responsibility. What is interesting historically is what happens to the people. Okay, who were involved with getting Jesus tried and crucified. We all know what happened to Judas. Horrible, horrible death. Here's some other data. Annas, who was that high priest, within a few, just a few years after that, his entire enterprise, the entire empire he has built is totally destroyed. He loses it all. Caiaphas, who is the high priest that said, let's get him you know, leading all of this, he's deposed out of the high priest's office and he loses all, all of his money and wealth within a couple years after that. Pilate himself is banished to Gaul in a few years from now and he ends up committing suicide. Um, and because of whatever reasons we don't know, but that's his end of his life. The Jer- city of Jerusalem falls within that 40 years after this. When the city falls, what, do they, what the Romans do because of the revolt that's taken place, they take out 3,600 of the leading citizens and they have them crucified. So a lot of the very people who said, let his blood be upon our head, it was. It was, okay? Um, what does the Bible say? You reap. Yeah, be sure your sin. Yeah, we'll find you out. The city is destroyed and thousands more are then slain and, uh, as they are taken prisoners and uh, sold into slavery and others were killed. So a lot of the people that were instrumental characters in the death of Christ, they personally have a really, really horrible, horrible ending to their life. And so we all know that the nation as a whole, there is no nation of Israel. It goes into, uh, into absolute silence up until 19. 19- there is no nation of Israel. The Jews are scattered. They go through multiple persecutions. Let his blood be upon our heads, and it was. And so a lot of that suffering takes place. They give this death sentence to Jesus that he's going to die, and then they take him away. We'll pick up there next week, where they take Jesus away and the actual crucifixion that happens to him.